from the ABA Center for Innovation. As the legal industry evolves and changes, the Innovation Network will be here, bringing you interviews with the change agents on the front lines. We'll talk about new service delivery models, court-based innovations, and other developments that positively impact how the public and the profession access legal services and information. I'm Joey Gartner, director of the ABA Center for Innovation. Earlier this month, we learned about sandboxes in the United States from Jeff Kelly. In Canada, the sandbox environment has continued to gain steam as Alberta followed British Columbia and Ontario to be the third province entering into the regulatory experiment known as a sandbox. Today, we'll take a deep dive into Alberta's sandbox structure, the road to its implementation, and what's next. And joining us for this conversation are three key players in the sandbox environment in Alberta. From the Law Society of Alberta, we're joined by Corey Gitter, Chioma Ufadike, and Len Polsky. Thank you all so much for joining us today. Chioma, we'll start with you today. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself so that our audience can get a little acquainted with who you are and what you do in this space? Okay, absolutely, Joey. Of course, I'm Chioma Ufadike. I'm currently the Senior Manager Risk and Compliance at the Law Society of Alberta. And with regards to the sandbox here in, at the Law Society of Alberta, I am the project manager. Our next guest is Corey Gitter. Corey, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, Joey. Yeah, my name is Corey Gitter. I'm the Deputy Executive Director and Director of Education and Policy at the Law Society of Alberta. I've been with the Law Society for about seven years now, and I would say the first three to four years of my tenure uh, were really all about um, innovation and regulation and trying to build something like this sandbox we now have. Our last guest today is Len Polsky. So by background or by way of background, I'm a lawyer by training, spent several decades in private practice, uh, most of the time running my own law firm, uh, litigation boutique. So I was able to experience firsthand what it's like in the trenches practicing law. And then about eight years ago, I joined the Law Society, spent most of the intervening years uh, running the practice management department, where I could apply what I learned in private practice to to helping other lawyers uh, succeed with their practices. And then more recently, I became the manager of legal technology and mentorship. And in in that capacity, I'm heavily involved in the working group that is putting together our sandbox. Well, thank you, all three of you, for bringing your expertise to the Innovation Network today. Chioma, how would you define a sandbox? So the sandbox concept is not really new. And I think most people know sandboxes primarily from the fintech industry. But, um, but the sandbox concept, as we all know, is gaining popularity now in the legal industry. We have sandboxes currently in place, as you suggested, in, in three Canadian provinces, so BC, Ontario, and now Alberta. But in a nutshell, Innovation Sandbox is really a safe place where the providers can develop innovative models for the delivery of legal services that currently cannot be offered due to our existing regulatory requirements. It essentially allows the providers to test their new ideas and models for the delivery of legal services in a controlled environment. Sandboxes are not new. These are a concept that has been well-developed in fintech. I think internationally, we know there's upwards of 70 participating sandboxes. And sandboxes are not uniform. What is unique about what Alberta is looking to do? I would say what's unique about us, we just got our sandbox approved by the benchers or the board of directors in October, and we have a launch date in February of 2022. 
But prior to that, I think we did a lot of learning, right? From Utah, from BC, and even from Ontario and the UK, just learning about their processes. So I wouldn't say what we're doing is something new and something different because we've just taken facets of the way other sandbox have been operating. Um, We have a a unique program where um, we have a framework that governs the program. We have eligibility criteria that the applicants, you know, have to make sure that they meet the criteria before they apply into the sandbox. We have an assessment and approval process. We have technology to help us facilitate the receipt and the approval of the application. So I would say not necessarily unique. I would say we've just taken facets from the different provinces, organization, and we've developed a unique sandbox. I think Len has a time to add something there. Right. Well, like Choma just said, there's a lot of similarities between the three, but there are a couple of things that we've we've learned from, from the others and, and that distinguish what we're doing. One of the things is we don't have a time limit on our sandbox. Some jurisdictions have a, a two-year uh, runway, five years, our approach is to say, if there is innovation that will benefit the public, bring it on. And it may happen tomorrow. It may happen five years from now. We don't expect that the, the pipeline of innovations is going to end at any time. So we're, we're just keeping it open. If five years from now, no one else is coming forward, we've run out of new ideas, well, then we'll take that as a, a mark of success that we've done our job. The other, the other thing that we're doing is we're deliberately casting our sandbox as broadly as possible. So anyone is eligible to participate, lawyers and non-lawyers, companies, not-for-profits. So we're not restricting it. Uh, Ontario and, and British Columbia are, are taking the same approach. But then in terms of the kinds of proposals we want to bring in, we're not limiting our sandbox to a particular orientation. So Ontario, their sandbox is framed in terms of technological innovation. In British Columbia, the focus is heavily on access to justice. And those two pieces are definitely part of what we're doing. But our attitude is to say, whatever the, uh, the proposal is, is a benefit. If it aligns with our strategic goals, bring it down and we'll listen to it. So uh, a deliberately broad approach. So taking such a broad approach, Lynn, what do you anticipate success looks like? Well, I suppose first and foremost, uh, good participation, a good response from the legal community and, uh, and, and the non-legal community as well to have identified better ways to, to do law. And it may be in a, in a thousand small ways. It may be something groundbreaking, but a, a broad response that, that really informs us about how we can do it better. And then we'll take that information back to the the regulatory side of what we do as the regulator of lawyers in our province and look at the the rules and procedures we've got and evaluate whether they need to be updated or changed uh, or even eliminated altogether if the rules aren't accomplishing anything if they're just getting in the way and the sandbox has demonstrated that some facet of law can be done differently in a safe way well maybe that's the answer to to reduce regulation. These are not things that happen overnight, right? Every sandbox that we've seen implemented or or the road towards implementation in the United States has been months upon years of research, development, decisions about implementation. When did the idea for a sandbox in Alberta first spring up and how was it brought to the point where it is today? Thanks, Joy. Yeah, it's it's been a really interesting journey for sure. And and I would say that that it it started before we were conceptualizing a sandbox per se. And I, I would take it back probably five or six years ago when we were really looking at 
how and whether or not as the regulator in the legal profession, we should be regulating law firms and legal entities, not just individual lawyers and what that might look like. And at the time, a lot of that work had been going on in the UK. The UK had had a major upheaval of, of the regulation of legal services. And similarly, some, some big changes had been going on in Australia. So that really got us thinking about how is it that the public is best served in the legal industry? How, uh, how can and should legal services be delivered? And should we be looking at not only how the individual lawyer is delivering those services, but how the, the organization they're a part of is delivering the service. And you may recall uh, back around that time, there were a lot of debates happening around alternative business structures, ABSs, which became a bit of a dirty word in some, uh, in some places because there was a lot of fear in the legal community that ABSs would lead to a, a degradation of the profession. You would have uh, non-lawyers telling lawyers what to do ethical standards would be compromised and and so on and you know that things like you'd we'd lose the ability to protect solicitor client privilege and things like that so so back then when we were thinking about what innovation could look like where would innovation be driven we really thought it would be at this organizational entity level but those conversations were very difficult back then because they became very conflated with the fears that were associated with alternative business structures so i think that that we've come such a distance since then. And in part, the, the notion of a sandbox as that safe place has helped us bridge some of those fears because it, it is a bit of a protected in environment where the law society still keeps a close watch in a sense on, on the ethical issues, on the, the risk mitigation that the, the organizations are doing. And I, I, I it's just been fascinating to me because from that time five years ago where you know, even the mention of an alternative business structure or a non-lawyer delivering some legal service and um, along with lawyers would have just raised so much ire. Now, in part due to the normalization that I think has happened in jurisdictions like like Utah and California, and now in Canada, in Ontario and BC, by the time this came to our board last fall, we had almost no resistance to it whatsoever, which was really gratifying and also just an interesting lesson in how to iterate a process, I guess. Corey, that's fascinating that it, it changed not only so drastically, but it also changed. Five years may feel like a long time, but it's it's actually, in when we look at this system, a fairly quick, quick jump. I mean, we've, we've talked about that, you know, when, when Utah was the first one out of the gate with a sandbox, we didn't really know what to expect. You now have Florida, North Carolina, Washington, all looking at sandbox experiments. You have Arizona who, who went beyond the sandbox and really uh, revised their rules to, to, to sort of drastically re-regulate. Mm -hmm. So I think environmentally, we've seen a lot of change in that time. What do you think that change is, is uh, we can uh, account that to, that change in attitude about ABS is, where's that coming? No, I wish I had a, a really clear answer for that, but I think, I think the need for innovation is part of that, is part of what's what's driving it. I think the fears around what that might look like are diminishing because we are seeing so much more technology in particular in our legal environment. And, and there is certainly a, a much greater openness 
to that. I, I think the access to justice piece is, is one that we can't ignore either. It's, it's, it's also a driver in that pushing need that, um, that perhaps some of these innovations might, might assist there. There was a lot of cynicism, again, going back five years ago as to whether or not these types of innovations and alternative business structures or whatever they, they were going to be would have any impact on access to justice. But I think there's been a growing willingness to at least give that a shot because the need is so great. So I, I, I don't know that I can I can really pinpoint uh, why the change has happened. I think just ongoing conversation, normalization of, of technology, and perhaps a bit of a drive to find new solutions for the access issues that I think we have all across North America. Chioma, operationally, what are you thinking about for the next step? So the sandbox really is overseen by the innovating regulation group. Um, we oversee the operational components and we make decisions, right? And that group is comprised of, I would say, senior staff members um, of the Law Society. So I'm the project manager, Curry is the project sponsor, Len is the member, and we have other people in the project as well. So where do we go from here? October, like you said, we had the approval. Um, right now, it's just project management, right? Designing of the sandbox. We finalize the framework, the criteria, there's communications, there's several operational and technological pieces that we need to put in place. Designing the end-to-end -end aspects of the program and officially launching it in February. And then we do the communication and advertisement pieces. One thing I'm curious if you've given thought to is data collection. What data do you think is going to be essential in understanding if your sandbox experiment is successful? I think as we receive the proposals and the applicants, right, I would think the area or, or that they, they would like us to relax the rules, what they would like to do in their proposal, that's the data that I would like to collect. In looking at Utah, I think the data that they've collected that is very useful to us is what is it that they want to do? right? What is it that is offside of the rules that they would like um, a relaxation of the rules? So I think that that's good data to collect for us in the sandbox. Part of our, our criteria is a little bit of who, uh, who they expect to be serving, right? Um, and we, I think we'll be asking for some reporting on, on how, how the, their project has been received, who their clients are, you know, both volume and to the extent we have any demographic information about, uh, about who it is they're serving. Because again, if we go back to some of the, the, the drivers behind this, right, it, back to access to justice, back to, you know, how, how effective is different technology and reaching a different client base, I, I think we'll want to we'll hear from uh, our participants on those metrics as well. And if I were to just add one more thing, I think one of the items on the eligibility criteria is that that model must offer prospects of clear benefits to the public, right? So what are those benefits? Could it be improved efficiencies, cost, access, um, again, we always say that it must advance the goal of the Law Society strategic plan. So what is that? So that is something that we would like to, to gather at the end of the project to see if what you've proposed to do, you're actually doing it. A lot of sandbox approach stems around the idea that what we're building is being done in an environment where consumer protection can be monitored. Len and I actually met with um, a representative from Utah, and specifically, we talked about their complaints, number of complaints and levels. And um, we're quite happy. They indicated to us that the data that they've collected, their complaint levels were quite low. So that's something that we definitely want to track, right? And, and design a process to deal with complaints from the public. Um, because again, like Len suggested, our sandbox is open to both lawyers and non-lawyers alike. So if a lawyer 
is generating complaints, how do we deal with that? If the non-lawyer is generating complaints, how do we deal with that? So that's essentially something that we would like to, data that I would like to collect and determine the process to deal with that. Yeah, if I could add on, uh, uh, Utah's experience is really instructive because like Chom indicated, they've had, they've tracked the data and the, the approved projects in their sandbox have had literally thousands of uh, interchanges between the providers and consumers, and they've had literally a handful of complaints. So there's a concern for any of the sandbox projects that the sky will fall down uh, on all of us if we open up, if we relax any kind of regulation. And, and their experience, which I think is typical, is that that's not the case. If we build appropriate guardrails and we're looking out for the, the risks, we do risk-based assessments, uh, we, we should be able to emphasize the benefits without letting the potential for something going offside skew the debate. Do you have have a belief that you know sandbox structures and allowing alternative business structures are 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 really the degree of risk that some critics of sandboxes may say they are? Well, it depends how they're structured. Um, we're we're going into it by by inviting people to come forward with ideas that have a, a demonstrable benefit, hopefully. But also, we're saying right out of the gate, we want you to acknowledge that there are risks. Tell us about the elephants in the room and how are you going to deal with them. And if those risks can't be addressed in a reasonable fashion, well, then ultimately the, 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 the cost-benefit analysis says we shouldn't approve those projects. If, we, if they get past that hurdle, it means we've tried and they've tried to reasonably anticipate the problems that may, may surface. Uh, we had them off at the past. No project is going to be foolproof and we're not going to have a 100% success rate, uh, but that's not the measure of success. Um, and I think if it, if, if it's approached in a thoughtful way, protection of the public in mind, we, we should be able to, uh, to make it a safe, controlled uh, experimental zone. Have you encountered critics on the other side that say sandboxes really don't go far enough into addressing the access to justice crisis and we should be more aggressive? Well, the, those, those perspectives are always there. To use Arizona as an example, they, they haven't gone the sandbox approach. They've simply taken specific rules and revoked them. And they, they've cleared out the way in those areas. Um, and it's a much more focused approach. And, and that's a, a very legitimate way to go about it. But the advantage of a sandbox is we're not limiting uh, the, the innovations that might come down the pipe to those specific areas. So we'll, we'll just see what happens. Hopefully the successes will build on themselves when people see that there are benefits and people are comfortable with that, both the public and the, uh, from the regulator side, that will just encourage more innovation, more people to come forward and a, a greater comfort level. I can just jump in and out. I think it, it's we, we will have a lot to learn as we go through this process. I think absolutely there are critics who have who would say that this is not going to make a difference on access to justice, that it won't go far enough. I hope that's not the case, but I also hope that we we learn from it and, and see where we could perhaps be encouraging more. And the other trick I think is going to be that the processes that we have, and you know, Len's talked, Len and Chioma both have talked about the criteria and the application process and the risk mitigation and, and that oversight that 
benefits the law society will provide, which of course is, is very important in the sandbox environment. But we have to strike a balance that coming into the sandbox isn't so onerous <laughs> that it's going to discourage some innovators who may not have a lot of capital, uh, you know, or who, who may just have some ideas to still trust that the sandbox can be for them as well. And, and that's going to be a big learning for us and a communications challenge for us and, and a trust issue. I mean, I think that for anyone to come to the regulator of lawyers and say, put up their hand and say, I want to try something. Will you let me <laughs> is a leap for some. So, so we have, there's a trust gap there that, that if we are successful in the early days of the sandbox, perhaps we'll be able to bridge that will push some more innovation that will impact access to justice because it will draw from perhaps a different group that might automatically see themselves as being appropriate for a sandbox. If I were to just to add something to echo um, Corey's thoughts, I mean, the ecosystem is changing. The pandemic has taught us that technology has changed the way we do things. I mean, look at the way we're recording this podcast over Zoom, right? Um, the way legal services will be delivered the, with the use of technology will change and that would foster access to justice. I just wanted us to just keep that in mind that technology definitely will change the way in which legal services are being delivered. Has the pandemic sped up the background of this process? Has the pandemic kind of caused maybe some people who were skeptical of this to be more open to this concept because we're all living our lives, uh, you know, in a way that would have been unrecognizable two years ago? Yeah, I, th I think it has. I mean, I, I think that the, you know, the boulder was starting to roll downhill a little bit anyway, but I, I do think that it's opened up a lot. And a part of that is because lawyers in particular have changed so much about how they're interacting with the justice system through the courts or whether it's the, the, the registration of documents or uh, the, how they're getting their documents signed. All of those things um, have really changed so quickly. And I think that, you know, lawyers are, we can all probably agree, are a pretty traditional bunch who uh, aren't too quick to pivot, but they had to pivot quickly. And as Len said, the sky did not fall. They were able to deal with documents over Zoom and proper signatures, and they were able to effectively advocate uh, for their clients uh, in the court system through uh, through technology. So, so yes, I think it probably has smoothed out some of those some of those fears and created a bit more openness. We've been pretty fascinated to watch, at least um, in the American court systems, because there's kind of courts going down two tracks now, right? Courts who adapted remote practices that were really effective during the pandemic and are absorbing those and saying, no, we're going to keep this permanently. Uh, there are a lot of rural areas doing that, northern Michigan, West Texas. And then you see jurisdictions that are kind of going, say, no, biz, let's go back to business as usual. I've Some of the innovators I've talked to have had the mindset of, you know, business as usual is done, right? It, it might be impossible for us to really go back to business as usual because now clients, consumers of legal services have changed what they expect, right? I think a recent ABA study showed that pre-pandemic, 28% or, or, or less than a third of people looked for remote options when looking for an attorney or can even consider that in their criteria. And now 78% want attorneys who will meet with them remotely. Do you think that that really makes this a ripe time for sandboxes and innovation? Well, I'll, I'll jump in. I, I mean, yes, I, I think so. You know, unfortunately, I, when, I, when we talk about the courts and some other places, I, I don't think we know how many of those innovations are gonna be held 
we hope that they will, uh, but again, they, those are traditional environments and, you know, there are still some, uh, you know, who just need to see the whites of, of the eyes or, you know, need to hear the tone of voice in person and, and so on. So I think we're, we're, we're not really far enough along to know, um, particularly with regard to the courts, uh, how much will, will hold post-pandemic. I believe that a lot will, uh, but you're absolutely right. The drivers may well be the clients. And um, in terms of, of, of access, uh, a client from a remote part of the province, I mean, we have a very large province that is very sparsely populated in a lot of areas. The circuit courts uh, and the availability of lawyers in some of those remote locations are, are very, very difficult. So I think you're right. I think that there will be uh, clients that who drive it and that access issues will drive it because we know that we can be effective with people who otherwise wouldn't have um, easy access to our courts or our lawyers. And just to provide an example, our first two applicants into our sandbox is just that, right? They, they are looking to um, be able to meet their clients and sign documents remotely. So that's why I said the ecosystem is changing, what clients are, clients' expectations are changing and technology would definitely change the way legal services delivered. So just imagine being able to sign legal documents via Zoom in a digital platform or do your client identification and verification over a digital platform. So I think expectations would change with technology. Was there a high degree of education and outreach and engagement that was required to get key stakeholders on board with the idea of a sandbox? As Corey indicated earlier, we've worked on it for a number of years behind the scenes internally, briefing our, our directors group about the issue, about the concept. And, and at the same time, we were able all to see what was happening in Utah, in Ontario, in other jurisdictions. So, so at the end of the day, to, to get the green light to proceed with our sandbox required a lot of briefing and engagement, but we, we didn't get a lot of resistance, which other jurisdictions did. And we're, we're really fortunate about that because the, the support that our, our directors have, have provided for the project, I think, is really going to help. What were some of the key stakeholders that had to be brought into this process? Um, besides, of course, just your ventures, what were some of the other parties that it was important to have support from in, in looking at this process? Well, uh, the, the, the legal community itself, um, to ensure that this is something that, that would resonate with with lawyers and also reaching out to the tech sector, some of the groups that, that are involved with, I'll say, disenfranchised groups that, that aren't able to access the law, don't know where to go to access the law, to, to offer this as a prospect, and then to, to get a, a read from them about the interest that they might have in advancing proposals themselves. Uh, if we're just talking to a, a blank wall with, with, with no residents there, we would have, I suspect, concluded that this wasn't a good project. It wasn't a good idea. But the response we got was very encouraging. And again, we look at the, the reaction, the response that other jurisdictions have, have had, Utah, the, the UK, uh, elsewhere. And when they launched, uh, the, the number and variety of proposals that came across were absolutely inspiring. Um, and you couldn't, you couldn't guess you couldn't predict what would come across, just a fascinating array of improvements to how legal is done. Um, one of the challenges we've got, though, going forward in terms of that kind of outreach is to make sure that the broader community is aware that we're doing this. What some jurisdictions have tried 
is, is the traditional build it and they will come approach, uh, which works for, for regulation, uh, issue a, a new ethics opinion, a new set of rules, and then wait for the legal community to check your website. That's not going to be enough for a, a sandbox. We have to change our approach uh, and expand how we go about promoting the idea and getting people aware of it to encourage them to come forward. What is next for the sandbox approach? Well, I, I think it's going to be a big piece of communications. We're going to have to really uh, think carefully and be strategic and persistent on how we are marketing that we're, that we're doing this and letting people know and trying to, as I alluded to earlier, create that trust that come forward, like spend some time with us, talk to us about your, about your ideas and, and that we will assist in, in working through whether the sandbox uh, is, is for them. And, and importantly, as Len has pointed out, reaching out to innovators who aren't lawyers, uh, who might be willing to work with lawyers or who are interested in this space. We don't know how to do that very well. So we're going to have to get some help and find some new ways of spreading the word. Because of course, if you build it and no one comes, that would be very disappointing. <laughs> The other, the other thing we've got to do in, in the coming months as we build out the rest of the machinery is to resist the natural urge that we have as lawyers to overbuild. Uh, we're a, a rule-based bunch and our natural reaction is to say, okay, we're going to build out the, the greatest set of rules and procedures you've ever seen and make it really cumbersome and difficult for anyone to actually access the program. And then, like Corey says, to communicate the positive, which is that we're open for business. And I think for me, it was just it will just be getting plugged in into what other jurisdictions are doing because we want to know what their challenges are, their successes, the failures, how they're dealing with applications. So, a jurisdictional scan and just getting um, a good understanding of how they're handling applications and what they're actually doing. So, just educational opportunity from other jurisdictions that have gone before us. <laughs> Let me be the uh, maybe the first from from the ABA side to say congratulations on this development. We're really interested to watch and see how this uh, plays out. Every sandbox environment, I think, is going to teach something new. So we're eager to learn from from what you you all have put together. Are there any any closing thoughts anyone wants to share before we wrap up? I think just thank you for your interest in this. We'll be following uh, your work as well. I, we continue to learn so much from um, our, our neighbors in the South and um, and it's, it is it is exciting. And I take your point, Joy, that even though five years can feel like a long time for those of us who've been in it that whole time, in the grand scheme, uh, we are seeing some pretty rapid development and that's, and that's really exciting. Well, thank, thank you, Corey. Thank you, Chioma. Thank you, Len, for all appearing on the Innovation Network today. It was an absolute pleasure to have you. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. As always, you can follow the Center for Innovation at ABA Innovation on Twitter. And don't forget to share this episode out on social media using the hashtag ABACIN. The Innovation Network is a production from the American Bar Association, the Center for Innovation. Opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect those of the ABA. Editing for the Innovation Network is performed by Ben Woodson and Joey Gartner. Normally, this is the point where we would say we will see you next month, but we'll be taking December off and we'll be joining you in January for season three, where we take a deep dive into all issues re-regulation. We'll see you then. <laughs>